Good evening, everyone. As promised, this week we'll talk briefly about our understanding of nutrition and all its effects on public health as a whole. Up to 1900, humanity's study of nutrition was basically centered around caloric values. We had some understanding of what carbohydrates, protein, and fat were, and that protein is mostly used to build the body, while carbs and fat were mostly used as fuel. We knew also what goes in must come out, or at least will stay in the body. And there's a little more to it, but that's pretty much all we knew at the time. Things that are pretty common knowledge today, like that we need vitamins and minerals to live, were unknown at the time. Ironically, we had actually discovered and treated a couple diseases caused by deficiencies already. For example, scurvy, a nasty disease caused by lack of vitamin C, was known to be treatable by the consumption of citrus fruit. However, scientists didn't understand why this worked, just that it did. Likewise, rickets, a disease where bone softens because of lack of vitamin D, was known to be treatable by liver cod oil, which contains plenty of the stuff. Same deal, though, we knew it works, but had no idea why. Unfortunately, understanding that certain nutrients are vital to our health is a pretty important concept, and without that, you get some pretty bad recommendations. For example, in 1897, green vegetables were deemed unimportant to the diet because they provided little energy and had no protein. Tomatoes were in a similar boat and were more expensive, too. In 1907, a nutritionist of the time recommended that poor families could just remove oranges from their diet, supposedly without consequence. Vegetables were often considered mostly to be there for tastiness, as opposed to any sort of health. I probably don't need to tell you this, but vegetables and fruit are very important. Please eat them. However, by the turn of the century, there were scientists discovering how vitamins worked. Let's start with a doctor named Christian Eichmann, a young Dutch army doctor who was sent to southeastern Asia to study a disease called beriberi, which I know has kind of a funny name, but is indeed quite serious. It can lead to heart failure, nerve damage, and paralysis if left untreated. His first thought was, of course, some undiscovered germ, since that was all the rage those days. He worked for two years under this assumption, looking for some kind of pathogenic explanation, and also investigating other potential causes, like the climate, or some kind of European-specific vulnerability. None of that came to fruition. Now, I need to briefly explain something about rice. There are two kinds of rice you've probably seen before, white and brown rice. Both kinds have the husk, or a hard outer shell, removed from the rice grain. However, white rice has also been polished to remove a little bit more of the seed. Brown rice has not been polished, and so contains some more outer stuff that was removed on white rice, which is what causes the taste and color difference. I promise this will become relevant momentarily. What Eichmann discovered was that when chickens were fed only with white rice, they developed symptoms similar to that of beriberi in humans. However, the birds promptly recovered once their food was changed, and further experimentation showed that feeding chickens brown rice, or even just the husks, would lead to recovery. From there, Eichmann was assisted by Garrett Grins, who prepared an extract from the husks that could be used to cure the chicken version of beriberi. This was published in 1901, with Eichmann proposing the disease was caused by a neurotoxin, while Greens instead argued this showed that there was some essential substance present in the rice husk that the chickens just weren't getting. Basically, they discovered some of the first evidence of vitamins, and would later win a Nobel Prize for it about three decades later. 
From there, other researchers got in on the action. Through the work of scientists like Cornelius Peckelering, Frederick Hopkins, and finally, Casimir Funk, which is just a great name, it became clear that other substances in the diet were necessary for normal function, besides just your carbs, fats, and proteins. Funk believed that these substances were all a type of chemical called amines, and so combined the Latin word for life, vita, with amines to create the word we almost use today. Vitamines. The E at the end was later dropped when it became clear that not all vitamins were actually amines, and so we get our modern-day vitamin. By the year 1912, it was clear that vitamins existed, were important, and so there was a lot of new research that set out to identify all of the vitamins, what missing out on them caused, and where to get them. For example, in 1916, Elmer McCollum and Marguerite Davis discovered two chemicals needed for normal growth in rats, which they deemed factor A in butter and factor B discovered in whole rice. This started the convention of naming vitamins with letters. From there, vitamin D was discovered, which enabled the true understanding and treatment of rickets, which we're going to use to illustrate basically how a whole bunch of these deficiency diseases got investigated and treated. As I mentioned earlier, rickets is a disease where your bones soften that becomes very prevalent in poor urban communities during the industrial era. In 1870, it was estimated that about a third of poor urban children in England suffered from the disease. Before the discovery of vitamin D, it was observed that cod liver oil could be used to treat it, and that lack of exposure to sunlight seemed also to be a factor. But not until vitamin D was discovered was the cause truly clear. It was found that cod liver oil had vitamin D, which is why it cured the disease. It was then shown that rickets could be cured also with artificial sunlight. Ultimately, through more experiments, it was understood that fats in the body could be converted to vitamin D with sunlight, or it needed to be taken in by food. In the ensuing decades, other vitamins and their related deficiency diseases were figured out in similar ways. Beriberi and another disease called pellagra could be cured with vitamin B. As scientific knowledge advanced, it began to leak into the public consciousness. In 1917, during the First World War, there was an emphasis placed on producing foods that contained these vital vitamins. Food companies began touting the health benefits of their foods in advertisements around this time, which is very familiar to us, but was a new tactic of that era. By World War II, nutrition was a major concern of the government. The economic crisis of 1929 to 1936 caused widespread malnutrition, and then World War II caused rationing as well. Especially once war broke out, it was vital that soldiers are able to fight and that everyone else could still work to fuel those efforts. As a result, it was mandated by some governments, like in Great Britain and the US, that common foods would be enriched with vitamins. For example, British margarine and flour were upgraded with vitamins A, D, and with calcium. White bread in the U.S. was required to have various B vitamins added. These additions helped ensure that even in tough times, people could more easily get the nutrients they needed and prevent many diseases. A lot of regulations stayed in place too, even after the war, and the popularity of enriched flours and breads persists to this very day. I've personally consumed plenty of bread and flour that would not have naturally had those B vitamins, but I'm sure my body appreciated it. While vitamin and mineral deficiencies are not completely a thing of the past, they are much less common today than they were centuries ago. 
We know how they work, which nutrients to give as treatment, and can prevent most cases in the first place, with better diets, at least as far as vitamins go. That's it for this week. Next week, I think we'll get into one of the most important changes in healthcare of the 20th century, the rise of health insurance. As always, thanks for listening. If you've got thoughts, comments, or questions, please reach out with the links in the show notes. I'm always happy to hear from you. And thanks go out to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music. <laughs>